Hello and welcome to St. John's Derm Academy podcast, our educational resource for healthcare professionals in dermatology. I'd like to quickly mention our disclaimer that the information in this podcast is based on up-to-date information and expert opinion at the time of its recording. The podcast is intended for healthcare professionals, so although we welcome any patients listening, we do suggest that they see their own physician for personal medical advice. So joining me again is Dr. Fiona Lewis to continue our conversation about vulval skin conditions. So in the first episode, we spoke about history, examination and differential diagnoses. And in this episode, we're gonna focus mainly on treatment and management. So welcome back, Dr. Lewis. Thank you. So just to start off, what would be a common topical regimen for patients with lichen sclerosis? The important thing that you've established the diagnosis and we actually treat children and adults in exactly the same way. So every patient would get a three-month induction regime of treatment. So that would be an ultra-potent topical steroid, predominantly clobetasolpropionate, 0.05%. Ointments, not cream. Ointments are always much better tolerated on the gentle skin than creams. And we would do a three-month induction regime. So that's once a day for a month. Second month, alternate days. Third month, twice weekly. Just generally, topical steroids only ever need to be applied to the vulva once daily. There's good evidence that there's a bit of a reservoir effect, so you won't get extra benefit from extra application. But so once daily, but on that reducing regime. And there is good evidence that, again, a reducing regime works as well as daily. Now, what do you do at three months? So you need to see the patient at that point. And then thereafter, it does really need to be individualised. So I would say probably a lot of patients just use treatment as they need to. So if they do get recurrent itch, they might need to put it on once or twice and then they will be absolutely fine and they can go another two, three months. There are other patients that my cutoff usually is about if they're needing to use it sort of once every 10 days, then I would say, right, well, you need probably need to do it once a week. And then we would review them again and see how much they've used and also make sure that they're applying it properly. This all needs to be explained to them because, of course, it says on the tube, do not use internally. So, of course, they immediately think they can't put that on the genital skin. And so that sort of thing is important in explanation. We don't really know the answer as to whether women need treatment all the time. My feeling is they don't. Most patients, I would say it is most patients, once they're treated and things are really well controlled, they need very little to keep it controlled. There are other people with more active disease that will need it once or twice a week on an ongoing basis. I guess it's the same with any disease. Some patients need more treatment than others. And then the other thing, which isn't really treatment, but is a really important adjunct to treatment, is to use a good soap substitute as an ointment-based substitute. So hydromol ointments, epiderm ointments, cetropin ointment, any of those are helpful as a soap. Because often if you do it that way, then you don't need to apply extra emollient. And using it like that, so you have a soap substitute, you have a treatment, and that can keep things very straightforward. Right. And so they don't actually have to use that again at a different time of day, do they? Not generally. I mean, there are some patients that feel they like to use an emollient extra. Mm. And the sorts of things that they then use are things like coconut oil. That's one of the ones that's very popular. There are some other emollients. But generally, that is using it as a soap substitute Mm. is often works well without the need for extra. But again, you know, that is 
personal preference. It's not going to do any harm to use yeah. an emollient more often. But again, it's another practical point is to just make sure that they're not using their treatment as an emollient. <laughs> because, you know, Dermavate applied will help because it's an ointment. Yeah. And so it, that really should only be used for symptoms, not for as an emollient. Right. And how do you explain to a patient how much topical steroid they need to use? It is really important, actually, to explain it to them because I I tend to show them exactly where they need to apply it. You can either do that by feel, so you can say, you know, you need to apply it here so that they can feel where you need to apply it. Sometimes we show them with a mirror. Mm. So site of application is really important. And then the other thing is amount. So in general... It's usually what we say a pea-sized amount. It's about half a fingertip unit is about what is required for the average vulva. That would be less in a child. The other rule of thumb that we go on is that 30 grams of a topical steroid should last at least three months on the vulva. Now, actually, very, very few patients get through that sort of quantity of treatment, but some will because they need to use it more frequently. And then we say 30 grams in six months in a child. But again, that's really very very uncommon to get through that that amount yeah so you have a regimen for when they initially come Mm. and then what happens if they're on a maintenance treatment and Mm. then have a significant flare what happens then so first thing to do is to work out why because once you've got lichen sclerosis under good control so say you know they've been using their topical steroid maybe twice in the last six months it's really odd for lichen sclerosis to suddenly go crazy and there's usually a completely different reason for it In younger women, the commonest reason often is that they've just got candida. Mm. And so a sudden flare, I would always look for something else rather than lichen sclerosis. So normally what I say to patients, you know, if it does flare, the first port of call probably is your steroid. But if you put that on for two or three days and it's not better, you should have a swab done and see if there is any infection there. Because that's frequently a problem when patients get referred back to the clinic because their lichen sclerosis has suddenly gone out of control their LS is actually fine and it's a different different reason. So the, the candidiasis is one thing to think about. Obviously, if you've got patients with more unstable disease that we would be keeping under much stricter control and follow-up in the clinic anyway, and they have a sudden change of symptoms, then you do need to think about have they developed areas of differentiated BIN or possibly malignancy. But the infection is much more common. Yeah. And let's say a patient's come back now and they're stable. Do you then wean the potency of the steroid or oh. is it just the application no. No. frequency? I never wean potency. It's, it, lichen sclerosis is quite an interesting disease in that it really does seem to need an ultrapotent disease for it to work. And so weaning potency... I don't think is that helpful. It's also really confusing to the patient. You know, they got four tubes of cream and, you know, which one is weaker than that one and is that stronger than that one? So it's much better to just wean frequency. Makes it much so more keep, simple. So keep yeah. with the same thing, but use it less often. And so that's normally what we would what we would do. Hmm. And do you ever use topical calcineurin inhibitors? Uh, no. <laughs> because the next question was, yeah. was going to be about you know, concerns with malignancy. You know, some yeah. clinicians do have that, that concern. So I guess this brings us on to an important point that we might talk a bit more about later. But non-response to steroids, uh, is there needs to be another reason. So the question first I would say is, why would you want to use a calcineurin inhibitor? Mm. Uh, because the, there's randomised control trials now that show that they are not as effective as steroids. 
So why would you want to use something that wasn't so effective? And secondly, you know, there are reports of them potentially potentiating malignancy. Now, the, the worry or the concern with that is, is that if the lichen sclerosis was not so well controlled and then you switch to a calcineurin inhibitor because you think that might be better, was it that they actually they had developed differentiated VIN and then you switch to a treatment and the treatment gets the blame for developing malignancy? But there are theoretical reasons why that could happen. They're not well tolerated. They're not as effective. So I don't use them at all. There is some evidence in the literature, but it's not as good, anywhere near as good as the topical steroids. Yeah, that's really interesting that they haven't mm. really been that useful for those patients. And they're yeah. tolerated really badly. That's yeah. the other problem. They sting like crazy. Yeah, they do, yeah. Um, and that is another problem. Mm. And that's certainly common for patients who have eczema who, yeah, who exactly. put on yeah. very topical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so moving on to scarring with lichen sclerosis, are there any measures that can be uh, implemented to help prevent that? So the most important thing is treating it adequately. That's the most important thing. Now, one of the problems, obviously, is that we often get patients and they're diagnosed when they've got quite advanced scarring because it's not been picked up previously. So I guess the ideal case scenario is that you get a patient with really very early disease because as we were talking previously, is that sometimes if the disease is really early, you can actually normalise the vulva with a topical steroid and then you never really know if that's what the problem was before. So once you've got the lichen sclerosis well controlled, the scarring should not progress. And that's one of the aims of treatment. I mean, the aims of treatment are symptom control, uh, prevention of scarring. And if you've got good control of the inflammation, then much more less likely to develop malignant change but that is one of the mm. issues is that it's the time at which you get the patient because you can't reverse scarring with with medical treatment but you can stop it when you start treatment and so patients who have got significant scarring with functional issues then they should be referred to a specialized clinic because there are surgical options for those but that is very specialized work yeah and so long-term ultra-potent topical corticosteroids, so if a patient has good control but let's say has to use it as, as required, do you have a problem with that? No. No? Okay. No, I mean, we've published that you can use topical steroids for prolonged periods of time and if they're used appropriately, you don't see side effects. Yeah. And I think that is the big one of the... And it's not just with, it's not just with vulval diseases, it's it, the steroid phobia is dermatology in general mm. it's inadequate treatment because of the worries about using a topical steroid so yes you know if you don't need it all the time don't use it but if you're using it appropriately and you know under supervision that should not be a problem yeah yeah, yeah. No, I think that's very interesting because it, sometimes it's not just patients who have that kind of reluctance. Sometimes clinicians have that reluctance as well to continue Absolutely. with steroids. It, yeah. It's clinician reluctance. And, you know, one of the problems, we were talking about reducing potency, one of the big issues is that if we discharge patients on clobetazole propionate, mm. one of the issues is that sometimes they will get a repeat prescription for clobetazone butyrate mm. very close if you're electronically prescribing. Mm. But, of course... Clobetazone butyrate is not adequate treatment for lichen sclerosis. And mm. I had a patient, you know, that came back recently, flare of LS, mm. wrong treatment. Mm. 
Yeah. That was purely it. Sounds very close, yeah. but acts very differently. Yeah. 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 So it is just important to get that message across as well. Yeah. yeah. Moving on to systemic treatments. Do you have patients on systemic treatments? Or I guess the other question is, what, what do you do when uh, patients don't respond to okay. topical steroids? Yeah, it's a good point. I have absolutely no patients on any systemic treatment purely for lichen sclerosis. First question, and probably the most important one, is why are they not responding to a topical steroid? Because that's the that's the bit that you need to really work on. So uh, the way I think of it is uh, often with Cs. So first of all, compliance. You know, are they actually complying with, with treatment? And are they putting it in the right place? Because that's a very common problem is that they spread the dermavate all over the outer labia where there's no LS and they're not putting it where it needs to go. Secondly, have you got the diagnosis right? Or maybe we should reverse that and maybe put reverse that and say, have you got the diagnosis right to start with? So if you've not biopsied and you really think it is lichen sclerosis, well, then maybe it's worth biopsying that. There is sometimes an overlap with lichen planus, which can be difficult. Then thirdly, is there an additional diagnosis? So have you got an infection have you got an allergic contact dermatitis, which is why they're not responding? Because all of those things can be relevant. Sometimes, you know, patients can even develop, I've seen patients develop tinea cruris, so they come back and they say it's still itchy, mm. but it's not the LS that's itchy, it's mm. something completely different. And then the one that's missed a lot is have they developed vulvodynia? Have they developed a neuropathic problem? Because what you see always has to marry up with what they're telling you so if they say i'm really itchy you look at the vulva it, the ls is really well controlled so there's no ecchymosis there's no hyperkeratosis the architectural ch- change is completely stable the, the pallor may well remain but there isn't a reason that you're seeing as to why they're still so itchy and often actually if you really talk to them they use the term itch but actually it's not itch it's sore mm-hmm. So they perceive that the lichen sclerosis or the problem, they start putting their steroid on more and more and more. It makes no difference whatsoever. And often it's because they've developed provoked vulvodynia, which is really important to recognise because obviously increased topical steroid is not going to help at all. Um, And then that needs to be addressed as a separate entity. But that's one that's missed quite a lot. You know, a lot of patients that we are asked to see for recalcitrant or non-responsive LS is a different reason. Mm. And that's a that's a huge topic in itself, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah. And also the other thing that is, again, important is, yes, they may have got lichen sclerosis. If that's still very active, you're starting to develop atypical areas and it's not responsive, those are the group that are going to be far more at risk of developing a malignancy and need to be watched very carefully. Mm. I'm just going to go back to that point about ecchymosis. So where yeah. where do you usually see the ecchymosis? And is it kind of typical ecchymosis? So it doesn't occur in every patient. Yeah. Um, but if you see it, it's pathognomonic of lichen sclerosis. It doesn't occur on anything else. And for some patients, their disease is it's a very big feature. I tend to think of it as a sign of active LS because it's it's obviously where they're scratching. The blood vessels are unsupported because of the abnormality of the collagen in lichen sclerosis and so then you will just get these little blood vessels that pop it's more common in children probably than in adults with ls but you will see it in a labia majora labia minora you don't usually see it perianally it's usually 
predominantly vulva. You can see it in extra genital LS as well. Mm. That is a pathognomonic sign if you see it. Yeah. yeah. And management in the perianal area, is there any difference there? No, but the, the thing that's interesting, you see, is that do you count, you can't really count perianal as, you can count it as genital, but you can't count it as vulval. Mm. And perianal LS, even if it's there, often is not particularly symptomatic. It's a bit like extragenital LS. You know, it's there, but it it often doesn't bother the patients. Mm. And it's much, much, much more difficult to treat than the genital disease. Yeah. So perianal disease, yeah, yes. I mean, we would still use dermavate and lots of emollient as well. One of the big features of LS in children, often how it presents is constipation because they get fissures perianally. Yes, and then, of course, yeah, it of becomes course. very, very painful. And actually managing constipation in children is a big part of managing the LS. Mm. Um, but in adults, yeah, if, if you're talking topical treatment, it would be it would be exactly the same. The same. Yeah. yeah, moving a little bit away from lichen sclerosis. So, um, how does the management change for other conditions like eczema or psoriasis? Number one, you don't need an ultrapotent topical steroid. You may do if you've got really severe lichen simplex, which is uh, the end result of an itch scratch cycle, often set up by psoriasis or eczema. But with both eczema and psoriasis, you can use usually use a sort of mid mid-potency steroid one of the tricks i think that's helpful is if you've got a lot of fissuring then it is very helpful to use a combination steroid with an anti-fungal anti-candidal antibacterial because often you will get increased levels of bacteria where you've lost the barrier of the skin so if you've got significant fissuring i would generally do that for uh, for a bit and then wean down again emollients as soap substitute really helpful for both of those conditions but you don't generally need ultra ultra potent steroid and psoriasis particularly is something that will relapse and recur a bit like it does anywhere so you will often need to use treatment from time to time either either in short courses you don't usually need sort of maintenance treatment but they might need to use a topical steroid you know for a few days every two or three weeks or sometimes more often than that and again Interesting with things like psoriasis, if that's part of more generalised disease, even with systemics and biologics, the vulval disease often the most important treatment is still topical. It doesn't yes. seem to have a major effect on, on that mm-hmm. site. Mm-hmm. And, and with vulval psoriasis, is it as hyperkeratotic as...? No, it looks very different because you don't have the scale. Yes, you sometimes do if it's mons pubis and mm. outer labia majora, but if it's more on the inner vulva and perianally, it splits. So fissuring is fissuring. really yep. common and very well demarcated plaques, very different. Eczema is much more ill-defined, mm. whereas psoriasis, you know, you can normally draw a line around the edge of it. Yeah. Eczema is very different. And then it, it, perianal involvement with psoriasis is really, and peri, perineal involvement with fissuring there is also quite common. Mm. Okay. Um, so at what point in the management process would you suggest that clinicians refer onto a subspecialty service such as the one that you run here at Guys? So I guess, uh, you know, general dermatology, I, I think anybody should be able to manage straightforward eczema, psoriasis and, and, and what I call uncomplicated lichen sclerosis, maybe the classic type of lichen planus, but things like erosive lichen planus, Lichen sclerosis that's atypical, that's complicated by differentiated VIN. 
other less common things like extramammary pagets, uh, pre-malignant disease, those patients really should be in a specialised clinic where you've got gynaeoncology um, uh, combined clinics like we do here with more of a multidisciplinary team. And things like erosive LP, you know, that's a condition that affects lots of different sites. And although we wouldn't manage, you need ophthalmologists, ENT specialists, gastroenterologists for all the other potential effects that can occur with erosive LP and also for things like erosive LP, GVHD, where you may get a lot of vaginal scarring that may need surgery. That really needs to be done in an expert environment because it's not just the surgery that's complex, it's the post-operative follow-up. Yeah. And where can clinicians find out more information on this more sub-specialised area of dermatology? Do you have any good resources that you could recommend? So I guess for lichen sclerosis, the, the BAD guidelines are pretty comprehensive with algorithms of what should be done. And so hopefully those are quite, quite useful. You know, there are textbooks, there are BAD information websites for patients, the International Society for the Study of Oval Disease, they have some patient information as, as well. Well, that's been really helpful. I've certainly learned learned a lot from, from our conversation. I think we uh, might leave it there, but we may end up doing another podcast episode. Maybe we'll tackle <laughs> vulvodynia next time. because that's, yes, that's own... a whole topic by itself. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but uh, thanks again. Um, I really do appreciate this, and I'm sure our listeners um, appreciate your expertise oh, you're as very well. Welcome. So thanks, Dr. Thanks. Lewis. For more information, please visit www.stjohnsdermacademy.com under our podcast tab. You can also find a link to our podcast survey. We highly appreciate your feedback and we're very keen to hear about what we did well and what we could do better. All the feedback received will be used to design our future content that suits your educational needs. Finally, I'd like to thank our partners. They don't have any influence over the content produced in this podcast, but their support is highly valuable to us please visit our website for more details under partners. And thank you again for listening and we hope you're able to join us for the next episode.